Well, friends, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 as we enter into a section that essentially is some summation and conclusion to this letter, which I have found to be incredibly rich, not just in my personal life and preparation, but also as I've considered its implications for where we are as a church, where we are as a church in this culture, in this day and time, and just so grateful for how the Word of God still is alive, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It has a way of getting between what is said to be joint and marrow, those in-between places, and then just mess with us. I love that I get to share with you the idea of misery loves company as the word undoes me during the week. Then I get to share with you how miserable that can make you on Sundays. And, and yet do pray that by the time we're done that you do feel the relief. Um, that sometimes takes me days to uh, realize because it's a, it, it's a beautiful but difficult thing as the word of God is brought to bear on our lives in every part of our lives. Now, if you look at the beginning of chapter, uh, of chapter, oh, I'm sorry, in chapter four, at the beginning of verse 12, it begins with this word, beloved. And this word gives us a, a, an idea of the transition that's going on in this letter. In fact, if you look back at verse 11 that we looked at last week, he basically had this kind of pre-doxology to the letter itself when he said, to, be, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And then he says, beloved. This gives us a really clear indication that it's not just some forced uh, division that some translators put in here. It truly is a bit of a break from the main body of the letter to kind of a last declaration, a last statement to both remind the people what, have, what has just been read to them, what they are unpacking, but also to bring some things together. And so again, in that, let me remind you that First Peter has to do essentially with teaching the church how to suffer well in light of external persecution. And that external persecution is to be squarely because they are true believers and followers of Christ, that the outside world, the world that's outside of Christianity does not like the message that the powers that be, even the, the government and the rulers, they do not like the disruption of saying that they are not at the top of the so-called food chain. That their power and their authority is actually undermined by the fact that there is a sovereign God. And also that the power of when it comes to the word of God and the gospel that brings freedom to so many as it did to slaves and masters and women and children and then help rightly align even men in society that as the gospel was doing this undoing in society, that everywhere it was dismantling these power structures over and over and over again. And there was great reason and cause for those that did not adhere to the gospel to want that to be shut down. And so First Peter is this encouragement, this charge in how the church can respond well and rightly to suffering, as well as to ensure that when they do suffer, they're suffering for the right reasons. They're not suffering because of sin. Now, 2 Peter is very much like it. It wasn't written that many years later. So essentially, 1 Peter is also written towards the tail end of Peter's life, just prior to his own execution. And 2 Peter is very close 
to when Peter's life is to, is to end. In fact, when we get to 2 Peter, Lord willing, in the fall, then we will, and no, that doesn't mean that it's going to take us months to get through just chapter 5. That's not what I'm talking about. We have other plans. But as, as we get there, you'll see where, where Peter is very aware that he is about to die. But in 2 Peter, he gives us this idea of what is persecution? How do we handle persecution when it starts to make its way inside the church, particularly through false teachers. And basically what you end up seeing is that the way that people respond to external persecution, to when things are difficult, when people do not respond to that well, too often their ears start to become unplugged, not to the gospel, but unplugged to false teachers who want to bring in a teaching that says, here's a way not to suffer so much. I mean, and, and if, if you have the mind to see it in our culture through the years, you can see this over and over again throughout history, but you can also see it even in our contemporary society that when people struggle and suffer, what happens? Well, what I've seen as a pastor so many times is I've seen people's theology change because they cannot reconcile the, difficult, the difficulty they're going through with their concept of God being a good God. It's not that different than apologetics that is that, that kind of paramount question that we deal with when it comes to apologetics is this idea of God is good, God is sovereign, not necessarily both because there's so much bad in the world, therefore he can't be in control. Because if he was in control, certainly these bad things would not occur. It, which obviously we know that completely dismisses the fact that God thinks in ways that we don't and his ways are not ways that we would take. So that's where we have to kick in with some trust but it's not pure blind trust because he's given us his word. He's, pe he's peeled the veil back just enough for us to see that there, there is a connection between suffering and his glory. And we have enough in history, we have enough written in the narrative of scripture to see, like think of the life of Joseph, for instance, what man intended for evil, God intended for good with all of his suffering at the hands of his brothers, yet God designed it to actually bring relief in famine, but also a redemptive connection to Christ himself one day. He gives us just enough that we can trust and rest and believe. And when Second Peter then says, look, but if you don't believe and you start to listen to these false teachers and you allow that to creep into the church, that's a different type of persecution. And yet what's interesting is when we get there, you'll see that Peter uses very much the same pattern that he does up against external persecution, which is understand rightly the nature of the gospel. Understand rightly that you have an inheritance that's not here, that he is returning and that in his return, he will then establish his kingdom and his rule. And he will fully and finally crush the neck of all evil. And there will be no effects of sin. But in the meantime, be faithful. In the meantime, endure. And we cannot dismiss the fact that he writes this to churches. Do this together. You need one another in community to help one another through these difficulties. So as he gives this doxology back in chapter 4, verse 11, leading into this new address where he says, Beloved, I want to first of all just address this fact that the title of the message today essentially is the blessing, the blessing of suffering, or I should say the blessing of Christian suffering. As we are exiles in this world, and as we live in this world together as exiles, meaning there's nothing in this world, flesh and blood, that really essentially is home, 
Okay, so we had the parade of flags this morning, all identifiers of locales where Christians are doing ministry and where churches exist. And every one of them are temporary. Because when he draws us home, there is one banner over us and it's not a flag. And if it does have color, it's, it's so bright that it actually displaces the need for a sun. And that banner is Christ himself. So as we consider this, we're reminded of the temporary nature. But when he says beloved, I want to first deal with this fact that there is a blessing of God's glory on display in our suffering. So when he says beloved, he is saying, look, and really kind of the essence of this world, he says, Christian, you are known by God. This is a great term of endearment. In a sense, you are fully seen, you are fully known, you are known and seen by him, you are his very own. In fact, even if you go back to the very first couple of verses when Peter says, to the elect exiles, God out of his sheer love and mercy has chosen to reveal himself and we who believe are then made his beloved. So there is, in a sense, a different angle on the repeat of the very beginning salutation of the letter. But I think it should not be missed that this is, Christian, you are one of God's very own. And everything that comes with that, including your inheritance that he speaks of in chapter 1, that is part of being his beloved. Don't forget that. If you forget that and neglect that, then there is no way you're going to see eventually God's glory. You will think in terms of protection. You will think in terms of self-defense. You will think in terms of trying to defend your own sense of purpose and meaning and even really, if we get down to it, just comfort because we don't like difficulty. But if we see that it really is for the sake of God's glory, His renown, His fame, it starts to loosen our grip on temporal things to make this world a little bit easier. And we start to be okay with the fact that God has ransomed us, made us his own. And I don't mean this as as impersonal as it sounds, but God can use us in any way that he sees fit. But that's not as if, again, we are just commodities or products or just tools. but that we are beloved, we are children, we are co-heirs. In fact, if we see it rightly and see it according to Scripture, we actually realize that to be the beloved as it's tied to God's glory is that we start to realize that it's actually the greatest act of love that a holy God can do is to allow us redeemed sinners to share in the display of that glory. That it is the most beautiful, most perfect display of love that could ever be known in the universe and he lets us be a part of it even if that means at times through suffering so let's remember that we are his beloved and he says beloved don't be surprised do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you Now, in the previous section, one of the things that we looked at is that the lost world will look at sinners and they will be surprised that we do not participate in their sinful activities. They can't fathom that somebody would not enjoy sin. 
Now, we have to admit, sin is fun in the moment. In fact, so much of when we are running from the Lord and we're buffering pain and difficulty and just trying to anesthetize that pain, what we have to do is string together a lot of short-term sin. Because sin doesn't satisfy long-term. It ends up bringing guilt and destruction. But what we have to do is string together a bunch of short, very sporadic type of sin to keep on. And this is what happens when, if, if we settle into a particular sin that hasn't cost us much yet, that's what leads to addiction. Of, of all number of things, any number of things. But Christian, you are beloved, and being beloved, you are not to be surprised at what happens to you. In fact, let me read to you why. It's an extensive reading. You may want to turn there, but it's John 17, 10 through 26. This is part of that high priestly prayer that Christ prays for those that are his own in the upper room. This is leading up to the passion walk right before he goes to Gethsemane. And here's what he says, 10 through 26 of John 17. And he's praying to the Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, namely Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now, you need to remember that phrase when we get further in our text. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not. I, Uh, not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Can you tell that unity of truth is important? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love that which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is Christ praying for us to the Father before he goes and completes the work where he will say it is finished to secure for himself all these that he is praying for. That we would know the fellowship of the Trinity, that we would know the joy of what it is to fellowship with the Father, to have unity of faith and truth. And yet he squarely says, the world is going to hate them as it's hated me. 
So you also need to pack that away. There's several themes in this prayer that, that Peter, being there, sharing in this prayer, brings into his themes in our text today. Things like unity around truth. Things like this understanding of name. The name that was given to Christ. The name that they then have. And what does it mean then by identity of why did the world hate him? Because he wasn't of the world. Therefore, he lived by a different standard, which we've talked about so often in this book. And living by that different standard, we have to remember that we are definitionally, if indeed you are in Christ, you're definitionally Christian only insofar as the scriptures say you are Christian. This is not a cultural definition. More on that in just a minute. So, the blessing of God's glory on display is part of the blessing of going through suffering because we are putting on display that we are attached to Christ. That's what Christ prayed and that's what we are to do. And in fact, that's why we are to be persecuted because the world sees in us Christ. And it comes, it comes close to what Christ did, which was to, again, challenge the powers that be to remind them that they are sinners in need of a savior, and also completely incapable of saving themselves. Which if that's the case, then it removes from them, it undercuts the power that they hold over people and how to be redeemed, how to be made okay. You start to see that God's glory, our identity in Christ, suffering, they all intersect just as they did in this prayer of Christ. I have glorified your name in them. You've glorified it in me. I'll continue to glorify your name, basically while he's still here for a little bit longer, so that they may know you as I know you and love you as you have loved me. Don't take them out of the world. They're going to suffer. But when you do take them out of the world, have them be with me so they can see the glory that you've given me. They can share in this. Because of your name, they will suffer. All these intersections of being identified in Christ, the glory of God, suffering, they all intersect in Christ's prayer and they intersect here in Peter's address in 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, back in verse 12, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous, and he quotes Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you are a believer who has put your faith in Christ and Christ alone to save you, adding nothing to it, and truly are a Christian. You are beloved. You are His. And you should not be surprised 
when bad things happen to you in a world that is broken when you are living Christ-like. He goes on and says, rejoice. Rejoice at this, beloved. He says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see that connection? If you do not see rightly God's glory in the midst of great difficulty and suffering here, what makes you think you're going to recognize God's glory there? The converse of this is also true. It's possible in the midst of great difficulty and suffering to rejoice. This is not being glib. This is not this happy-go-lucky kind of thing. Um, I had this friend in college that, um, trying to figure out how to say this in case he ever watches this, Um, which I wouldn't think that he would. Anyway, he was very concerned about my happiness. And I just kept telling him, this is just resting face. Can't do anything about it. It looks like I'm upset. Really not. I'm always intense, but I'm kind of happy about it. So just, he goes, but Mike, you're just, you're just not happy. So I'm perfectly happy and I'm getting angry while he's telling me to be happy, right? And so when, you know, when he keeps taking upon himself, but I kept, I kept, then I would turn it around and say, okay, fine, tell me why. Give me the reasons why. And this was a, this was a guy that I was trying to disciple and, and bring along and we were getting into some deeper things. And it was, a, it was a great experience and he is actually one of my dearest friends. But in the course of it, we are so often concerned with happiness that is rooted in things that will not necessarily last, the only way for us to tap into true joy is to, even in the midst of difficulty, and that's sometimes the purification process of going through suffering, is to latch on to something that endures even this, like what I'm going through. And it is good of God to allow us to go through great difficulty to in a sense, force our hand to go deeper and to latch on. You know, if you want to think, you know, the, the strength of grip or the strength of the object you're holding on to when the waves and the wind kicks up, that at some point it gets to a place where a string on a kite's just not going to do it. A rope on a dock is just not going to do it. It's got to have deep moorings. It's got to have deep roots It's something that even a tempest or a tornado can't come and rip out of the earth and cast aside. When he allows us to go through great difficulty and storms, it is good of God that he does so so that we latch on to what gives us joy and endurance even then. We share in Christ's sufferings. He said, rejoice because at least know this much, you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. As John 17, we just read, as Christ had prayed for us, we are sharing in what he went through if we are suffering for doing and living like Christ did. Not as sinners, not for doing something bad and then bad consequence happens, but simply living faithfully the life of Christ that we are then persecuted for that or suffer for that Which again, admittedly, it doesn't seem to happen a ton for us in this country. Not compared to other countries that have been represented in our flags and stories that we could tell you. But nonetheless, it does happen. It may be at school and people making fun of you. 
It could be something as light as what I used to get, just being called preacher boy, and I wasn't even, my dad wasn't a pastor or anything like that or other things. But later on, you know, there was some, I guess, you know, respect or whatever. But the idea, though, is still there is, whether it's verbal reviling or you being kept from some kind of job promotion that even though couldn't be admitted, maybe it is because of your Christian faith. We rejoice that we are sharing Christ's sufferings. Why? Because this is putting him on display, not us. You can't rejoice if you're trying to claw and scratch for your own safety and well-being. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need to be safe. It doesn't mean we don't need to pursue health and safety where we are able to. But when we are suffering legitimately and obviously because we are being Christians, as we so-called take those hits and we turn that other cheek and we give the cloak off our backs and we go extra miles. And as Christ even did, without saying a word, without grumbling about it, as all this was occurring to him, we are putting on display something greater than men can possibly understand in the moment. In 2 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, as we've already read this morning, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Again, and it's okay, we can pray that there would be an, an alleviation of suffering. That's fine to pray for. But ultimately, if someone is suffering for the name of Christ, we know there's a reason. As Peter has said so many times, if it is God's will for you to suffer, for living like Christ is living, to share in Christ's sufferings, in a sense, to contemporize the suffering that Christ went through 2,000 years ago, and you suffer in our context, in our country, in our world, in your community, but because you are living faithfully for Christ, then if that persists, then we just pray also knowing that you will also share in comfort. But Paul knew that comfort wasn't always going to be realized in this world. What gives you comfort? Well, sometimes it's actual comfort, but sometimes it's the comfort knowing. And ultimately, you know, and you have comfort knowing that you will indeed be sharing in that inheritance that Christ has protected for you, to be with him, to see and to share in his glory. In Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. And he attaches it to persecution. See, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest, arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. My point is, it is riddled throughout all of Scripture that suffering God's glory and identifying with who he is and bringing fame to his name are all intertwined. 
This is why when we hear false teachers try to say, if you have enough faith, you won't suffer. Health, financially, whatever. It's so counter to God's economy on what brings him glory in this fallen, broken world that we do, we have to cry foul. We have to say that is not okay. It is simply men distorting the word of God to alleviate or buffer the pain that they are going through. And they twist theology to make it so. I don't know how much you followed what's, you know, what continues to go on in world affairs, but even as uh, Putin a couple of days ago is giving a speech and there's thousands and he attaches what's going on in the Ukraine with it being a spiritual crusade. He is having this loftier view that basically it is saving them from themselves and he says to invade or this operation, of course they're downplaying the destruction and the number of killings that are going on, but even in the fallout, even if there is destruction, he's saying this is still for the better good. Basically, they are lost sheep and they don't know any better. And he has brought in the Russian Orthodox Church to baptize this crusade against Ukraine. It is absolutely a version of Christian nationalism that is vile and has nothing to do with Christian. See, this is where we have to be careful in our text today because when we say suffer as a Christian, if we mess up the definition of Christian, you're going to suffer for the wrong reasons. See, he says, as he goes on in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is an assurance that when you do suffer and you are suffering for being biblically a Christian, then you have this, in a sense, blessed assurance that you are his and he is going to keep you. It doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be martyred. This is Peter. This is Peter that in his early days, I absolutely believe would have been a Christian nationalist. He had a sword in his hand and he was lopping off ears in the name of Jesus. But what happened over time? Over time, he's become this guy that says, if they revile you, don't revile back. Because Peter has seen it all. Has he not? Has he not experienced suffering as a result of being a Christian? But in the face of suffering, he was very bold, wasn't he? Before he, before even the upper room and Christ made this prayer about suffering and persecution, he says, oh Lord, we'll, you know, wherever you go, we'll go, we'll do whatever it takes. And even at the tail end of his time in the upper room, and he's saying, look, we'll go with you, we'll suffer with you. And he goes and shares in Gethsemane, takes a bit of a nap, wakes up, is very angry about some things that are happening, and even lops off the ear of a soldier. And then you know what happens when Christ is being persecuted and suffering? A little girl scares him. A little girl. Aren't you one of his apostles? Aren't you one of his disciples? Uh, and he's warming his hand over a fire, and, and he's going, no, I'm a little girl. Mr. Bold, Mr. Courageous, Mr. in the midst of, here I am in the name of Jesus, I've got my sword, let's do something about it. Little girl scares him to death because he's seeing what the fallout actually can produce. 
Because perhaps just down the way he hears the bludgeoning that Christ is going through. But without a word, without complaint. Peter has seen it all. He has seen what happens as a result of denials and yet Christ so graciously restores him. He feels so much remorse after, is embarrassed to some degree, even after the resurrection. And yet Christ says, you know, who's going to do this? He says, I will. And three times he calls upon Peter. And Peter says, I will follow you. And Peter begins to stumble and trip all the way through his sanctifying process of being a disciple to become this guy. Now, to know the blessing of suffering as a Christian, the first thing, a bless, the blessing of, of God's glory being put on display because we are, we are suffering, because this is literally showing that he is greater than even what we're going through. The second thing, and only the second thing, is the blessing of the Christian's identity being exposed. It's actually a blessing that when we go through suffering, it's actually exposing what people suspected all along, that we're Christians. That there's no hiding, there's no uh, closet, there's nothing. You are actually Christian. Look at what he says, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, just to be safe, this is an easy, this is an easy pastoral passage to manipulate just a bit and basically to really lay it on meddlers. You know, hey, you're just as bad as a thief and a murderer. I really do believe he obviously means that meddler, I really, honestly, I think because it's tied a bit to this idea of being an evildoer and then also attached to a thief, I basically think that he's talking about someone being, he's the getaway guy. He's the guy complicit in crime. Okay, now it is wrong to meddle in other people's affairs, so to speak. And I mean, just being a gossip or anything like that, but I just don't think that's, I don't think he's going for that kind of reach here. I think a meddler here is, it is basically someone who's participating or sharing, doing something they shouldn't be doing. They're in the middle of something they shouldn't be in the middle of. And I just think it's basically, he's just extending the idea of a thief an evildoer. This is another participant who may not be doing the actual act, but they're helping support it. Just giving you relief in case you're a meddler um, and you need to, you know, you still need to repent, but just know that nobody is looking to, for the death penalty. Uh, you know, I'll just put it that way. Okay. A little extreme, maybe, maybe. Okay. But he says, so he's clearly saying, don't suffer for this reason, but he says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's only a couple of times in all of the New Testament that the word Christian is even used, and this is one of them. I think it's only three times. This is one of them. He is attaching a lot of strength to the name, the identification of Christian. Now, what do we know about that? Okay, if you go to Acts eleven twenty six, you don't have to go there. It's a short passage. I'll just read it to you. It says, and when they found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's that name. But it wasn't a term of endearment. 
This was a term of reviling. Okay, it was like the opposite of Crips and Bloods or some kind of gang designation. I mean, it was, it was not necessarily meant to go, yay, these were Christians. Ugh. And there was a particular perspective and some particular things attached to that name as that label was given to people. And if you look at what led up to the events of this descriptor in Acts chapter 11, you will see that it's things like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 of the sharing of goods, of gathering regularly under the teachings of Christ through the apostles, of the giving and sharing of anything. They basically had a a very controlled, redeemed kind of socialistic thing. Everybody owned everything and they helped each other and they were losing jobs because they were followers of Jesus. But not just that, it was tested because then you get to chapter six and you start to get to the, the deacons who are then being, or the prototype of deacons being installed. But right after that, what happens? Well, one of these deacons ends up being persecuted and executed and that's Stephen. And yet when you read Stephen's account in chapter seven, you hear this amazing articulation of this redemptive story from the Old Testament until Christ's day. And Stephen is saying it on his knees when the rocks start to fly. And then in chapter eight, what do you have at Acts? You have Paul complicit. Even if he's not throwing the stones, he's holding the cloaks of those who are, he's a meddler. And they kill Stephen. You know what happened soon after that? God saved Saul. A lot had happened and fueled this name, this term Christian. And Peter attaches that to his statement in our text. But that's not the only place where it happens. At the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, verses 28 through 29, it says, And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, well, except for these chains that I'm in. Because he was, he was in chains before King Agrippa. See, right now my dad joking's got to die because Agrippa, it's grip and in chains. And I'm just having to let that die right now in my head as I'm preaching to you right now. Thank you. People going like, stop, just go on. Okay, so I'm going on now. Would you persuade me? So again, even Agrippa, even the lost world has an identifier in their head. And he's like, you're not going to convince me. But Paul was obviously trying. And that had to do, if you go back just prior, he is sharing the redemptive story of God's gospel through Christ. But what is happening while he's doing this? He is in chains. He is being persecuted for being a Christian. He's saying, hey, why don't you become as I am? <laughs> he's in chains. The king's a king. He's got everything in the world. And yet Paul is saying, essentially, you have nothing, though, to look forward to. And he's saying, I would rather you be like me to be a Christian. <laughs> but if I'm a Christian, this is, look at where you are. And so Peter, when he makes this attachment with that name, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
Guys, this is where we cannot confuse the term Christian. It has become a lobbying group. It has become a a political action group. Evangelicals, we say Christian for this or for that. Any number of things we attach Christian to, if we're not careful, we will think that having that name levied upon us, but if it's associated with things that are not distinctly, truly, biblically Christian, then we will falsely believe that when the world, I mean, just basically look at the political landscape. And again, not to, not to get into great depths here, but do you really, and again, man, I, but I still have to say it. Do you really see Christ at the forefront trying to break into the capital, bearing a cross and trying to read scripture and pray, having broken so many laws and vandalized and yet still call that Christian? And yet some people would say, well, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. And yet, no, actually you broke the law. You should be in jail. I don't mean this as a political thing. I mean it as a definitional thing that too often we are associating things with Christian that are really actually not. I would say, look at the characteristics that Peter's used to describe why you are suffering and how to suffer when you do. Do you think yelling and screaming and calling the other side names is anywhere in the text? It is not. Is there anywhere in here that says, okay, they're using a pocket knife. I better go get a dagger or I better make sure that I defend my rights to go get even larger weaponry to defend my, is that here? I'm not, I'm not pushing pacifism. I'm saying that as a Christian, if you suffer and your response to suffering, not in behaviorism, not in a particular political ideology, I'm talking about as someone who proclaims the gospel of Christ who lovingly and yet boldly is sharing that all are sinners in need of a savior. When you're suffering for that reason and you get put in jail, you know what the church is supposed to do? Honestly, they're not supposed to pick it. They're not supposed to go and break into jail and break you out. Even though the early church even tried to do that. And Paul said, "Mm -mm, don't. God has me here for a reason. So what do they do? They bring in food. They bring in letters to say, we're supporting you. They bring in cloaks because it's cold in that cell. When we suffer for those reasons, we can know we're a lot closer to what it looks like to suffer as a Christian. Every other type of suffering is something else. Church, we have to make sure that we are, if we are suffering as a Christian, that it is not Christian as it is defined popularly in culture, but biblically by God himself. He says, be unashamed. And that lack of shame has to do with the glory of God. You know what that means? You have to lose pretense of actually defending yourself. You have to lose this sense of justice that you deserve something else. You are putting God on display even if you suffer. Now, guys, I realize this sermon probably is not the most practical for what you may be going through. Maybe it's more prophetic for what may be in 10 years or 20 years. I have no idea. But I do know this. I do know that, biblically speaking, the religious legalists were just as persecuting of true Christians as were those who were anti-religious, all about power, atheistic, idol worshipers 
It was both extremes. So you need to be prepared that if you're going to suffer as a Christian, that when you don't express your Christianity like they do, you may suffer at the hands of those who call themselves such. He says, look, trust judgment. God himself is the judge. He says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, I, I'm, this, this, this to me, this, is, this could seem really out of context. I've heard whole sermons in revivals preached in this verse, and man, the dude would go off on just tearing the church to pieces. But look at the context. I do think he's bringing in, in a sense, that refiner's fire element that this is, that persecution and suffering as being Christian, it is purifying. To have no shame in light of wanting to put God's glory on display means that you are content with God being displayed, not you. And that takes a process. And a lot of times it takes a lot of little persecutions, a lot of little sufferings to get us there, so to speak. We have to trust that God alone will judge. And he begins with the church. And in the church, though, he disciplines us and shapes us to show forth his glory to the world while we do suffer. But then he says, what do you think he's going to do, though, with those who do not claim Christ and actually disobey the gospel? They're not being shaped to become something better. If they continue to refuse the gospel, their judgment will not be discipline and correction and refining. Theirs will be destruction. For those who refuse the gospel, who reject the gospel, if you are in here or online and you refuse to believe that Jesus Christ alone can save you, not a mix of you and Jesus, he's no co-pilot, he's not a co-author of your story, you're dead cargo and he raises you from the dead. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ alone can save you and that what he did in his life was actually the life that you could never live because he did it perfectly and you have sinned, you gotta at least admit that much. But then if you believe that he died on a cross and not just to show a spirit of sacrifice, but actually purchased through his blood, the pardon of those who would believe that you believe, you become one of those that believes that he dies a death that I actually deserve. I do deserve that. And he did it for me, but that he rose from the dead. Otherwise it's meaningless that he rose from the dead so that there's no more perfect life to be lived. He's already done it. There's no more death that has to die, so to speak, a person because he's already done it. And he rose from the dead. There's no more lamb, no more sacrifice itself because that sacrifice on the altar got up out of the grave. We have to trust his judgment. And when we believe he's done that on our behalf, the thing that we have to face is simply being disciplined as children, but not eternally judged. But those who disobey the gospel, they do have to face that eternal judgment. And that's part of why we are willing to suffer, to show the world that, look, even if I lose my life in this life, it is worth it for others to know eternal life so they don't have to face God's judgment like this. He then quotes Proverbs eleven thirty one. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then he wraps it up with verse 19. Therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. 
I love that Peter keeps this really big, magnanimous view of God. And we actually don't hear this charge, this encouragement of entrusting to our creator. You do, but we don't get it a whole lot. You hear it some at the beginning of things like in Ephesians, the beginning of Romans, at the beginning of Colossians. Paul uses it at the beginning. Peter here is using it as this charge, this encouragement to endure. Because what? When you talk about creator, you're talking about the one who is in legit control over everything. He has made you. But he's also reminding them that he's also remade you. He's remade you. He is not just the creator of your life and breath, but he's the creator of your new life, your new breath. Church, we have to keep focusing on what the scriptures define as Christian so that we can have all the blessings that come with suffering as a Christian. Otherwise, we will mess it up. We will think that we are suffering just because we're on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, or that we're on the wrong side or the other side of a particular ideological argument. The fact is we need to make sure that we are suffering definitionally, biblically so, as a Christian, according to the text. So we have to keep boring into what does it mean to be a Christian? We can't assume these things any more than we can assume gospel. We can say the word, but you ask someone just on the fly, give me a one-sentence definition of the gospel. They start sweating. They're, they're trying to remember some Sunday school lesson that had that. Um, if they're of a particular age, they're trying to remember like felt board images in Sunday school. And, um, and, and, and I'm not making fun. Well, I'm making a little bit fun. But the, the idea is that some of these terms we just we presume way too much that it is a shared understanding. And Peter puts so much on the name Christian as the reason that we suffer that we better understand how that's defined. And Peter's been doing it his whole letter. He's been doing it the whole time. Church, we also have to understand that if we suffer, we have to understand as Peter has said multiple times, if we suffer as a Christian, being faithful, bearing the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, pace, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That people revile us and we don't revile back. When we suffer for those reasons and for the reason of sharing the gospel with others, when we suffer for those reasons, he says, trust that it's God's will. Not being fatalistic, but basically you can't trust that it's God's will if you suffer because you're being a jerk about being a Christian or you're being judgmental to other people as in condemning them to hell. That you actually are reviling back and they just snap back at you too. You don't get to, you don't get to come under this category and therefore you don't get any of the blessings that are associated with suffering as a Christian. God's glory shines brightest out of suffering. The darkest places produce the backdrop for the brightest lights. So again, I encourage you that if you do not know Christ, and I know in a weird way it sounds like I'm preaching, know Christ and suffer, but it's no different than Paul standing before Agrippa and saying, I do wish that you were as I am. 
Look, there is going to be suffering in this world. And even if he's not talking about necessarily dealing with cancer or different, different things like that, there are some principles that would apply for the believer that can help us, that can help you if you are going through that kind of suffering right now, more so than suffering because someone's reviling you for being a Christian. There are many principles that you can take and apply, but I've just had to stay focused on what the text, the context is of our text. But with that, I charge you that if you are not a believer in Christ, come to him today and know that there is purpose in your suffering and know that you will not suffer forever, but you will be with him forever. Because if you try to avoid suffering in this world by being your own God, according to the text, you will suffer forever in a very real place separated from God in a very real place that the scriptures would call hell, Hades, Sheol, a place of death and darkness and suffering. And that's eternity. And that's a lot longer than your dash. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would bring us to a place of embracing and being vigilant to understand what it means to be Christian. That if we're going to bear that name, that we understand the descriptors in your word that actually show that, define it, shape it. And Lord, then help us to live that way before uh, those in our homes, to live that way before those that we work with and around, to live that way even as, as citizens in earthly kingdoms, but to make sure we're still submitting in the right ways. In all the ways that Peter has said that we are to submit to authorities, then help us to live that way and live as Christians. And then if it means persecution and fallout, then so be it. And then let's see your glory shine through more brightly than it possibly could have if it's something we tried to achieve by force or some other means. Lord, help us to trust your economy of how you use those that you have redeemed for your glory in this world. And Lord, help us to remember to remind one another in a community of the church that it won't be long. Your kingdom will come, and we will have relief. But that will just be the beginning of the pain of those, for those that are living around us that are disobeying the gospel and refusing to come to you. So help us while we are still here, while we still have breath, to be vigilant in these things. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.